0: I'm Josh Hammer. I'm Inez Stepman. I'm Ben Weingarten.
1: And I'm Rachel Bovard.
0: And this is NatCon Squad, where common sense and common good meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. So welcome back, everyone. We have a well-rounded show as usual. We are grateful to Inez, of course, for subbing in for Emily this week, who's a little under the weather. We're all wishing her a swift convalescence. So we're going to kick it over to Rachel first. She's going to talk about how Republicans apparently plan to run this midterm election only on the Democrats' manifold failures, what could possibly go wrong there. Ben is going to talk about the new FBI domestic terror unit. We're going to use that then as a transition to weekend's terrible events in Colleyville, Texas, a hostage situation, terrible events that obviously could have been a whole lot more terrible. We'll get into that a little later. And then we will finish it with Inez talking about the metaverse becoming a reality. Ooh, very creepy. But before then, let's kick it over to Rachel to kick us off with 2022 midterm update.
1: Yeah, a real a real upper of a segment because <laughs> as as usual. But so I we've talked before about you know, how you know Republicans are potentially looking at. Uh, taking over in 2022 midterms, winning back majorities in the House and the Senate. And I wrote last week for the Federalist about how I was very uninspired by the House Republicans agenda, should they take forward a majority, which basically consisted of a parent's bill of rights, energy independence, things like that. Again, not necessarily bad priorities, but things that, again, should be sort of running under the, under the in the background while they take on the actual issues that are plaguing their voters, because of all you know you always hear the old line this is the most important election of my lifetime but in all the lifetimes that i've witnessed midterm elections there's a lot of really high stakes issues right now you know voters are being sort of tyrannized by a number of policies that you know house republicans need to address and that just goes to the bigger factor here which is that if republican majorities are going to do anything they have to deliver specifics for their voters and specifics that mean something in the moment we're living in so we had that little appetizer from Kevin McCarthy only to come to the main entree from Senator Mitch McConnell, who uh, announced recently that he has nothing to announce. He will intentionally be choosing not to put forward a 2022 agenda for Senate Republicans to run on. That was a choice uh, made articulated uh, in a donor meeting. And you saw Rick Scott, who's the head of the uh, NRSC, the Republican senatorial campaign arm, echo that and say, yeah, we just can't really agree on everything. So we're just going to let senators run. Now, the dynamics here are a little bit different in the House and the Senate in that You know, McCarthy controls the floor in the House. The speaker or the presumptive speaker controls everything, what will come to the floor. The Senate is different in the sense that every Republican senator will have that authority. They defer a lot of it to McConnell, but any senator could force any one of these issues. So the blame here is not just on McConnell, it's really on the conference um, for sort of taking on McConnell's lack of an agenda. Now, I don't think the logic here is completely crazy in the sense that. You, know, you are seeing Republicans gain voter identification, voters coming over to them simply because Democrats are so terrible. And that seems to be what McConnell's relying on here. He's saying, well, we're just gonna, if the enemy's committing suicide, we're just gonna let them do it as like the old adage goes. But at some point when you take power, you have to then say, these are the things I'm going to do to save my voters from these terrible things that sent them to my party to begin with. And that's what we're missing here. And I think that's been a consistent and perpetual problem with Republicans in power. They want to get a majority to put it up on a shelf, shine it, and look at it without actually using it to make people's lives better. And I think that's where we find ourselves. And if that's the case, we are going to have a very short majority. Um, So I throw it open to the group for comments on that. Because um, I'm, I'm really, again, not, not inspired by either McCarthy or McConnell.
2: Um, I'll, I'll jump in here just from the, from the state perspective and on, on issues like education um, and, and other cultural issues going on right now. Uh, I think they're still operating. You can see in the agenda that Mc, uh, McCarthy put out and, and what you're, you've written about it in Bright, uh, Rachel, but you can really see that they don't understand what actual moderate voters, why people are flipping to the Republican Party. And it's, it's not because of the same agenda they had in 2012, which is not to say that tax cuts or the Keystone Pipeline are not like good ideas. Um, But it's this backwards notion that, in fact, in order to appeal to the middle or people who are not consistent Republican voters, we have to go back on on sort of, um, you know, business issues. And the reality is the opposite. Um, People are voting for the Republican Party for the first time, if you think about the election in Virginia, based on concerns, for example, about critical race theory in schools, based on concerns about masking kids. Right. That is those are actually the issues that are are first-time Republican flip voters are actually coming to the party and voting for. And if they don't deliver, those voters don't have any long-term ties to the Republican Party. They're not going to become consistent Republican voters going forward if, if um, you know, Republicans don't actually deliver on those cultural issues that people are flipping their votes for.
3: So I'll jump in and I'll just make a, a couple of brief comments. Um, the first is, yeah, I, I think that the logic probably here is while your enemy is hanging himself, let him. But the thing is, you still need to provide some kind of compelling alternative at the end of the day. You, you might win by default marginally, certainly won't be a rousing victory, certainly won't be a victory that compels uh, voters going forward. And I think the perfect example of this was Trump versus Clinton 2016. You could not define what Hillary Clinton was. What was she running on? What were the three? What was the three point plan? You knew exactly where Trump stood, and that compelled a very vociferous and dedicated base. And the irony of all this is that the Republicans now twice have gotten benefits that they haven't earned. First, Trump bringing forth a conservative, populist, nationalist base, very dedicated to a cause, not necessarily the cause of the Republican establishment, of course. Republicans did nothing to inherit that that voter base, but Trump brought it. And now you have the gift of Democrats' disasters and radicalism across the country, but you're not gonna consolidate any of these gains. In fact, you're gonna turn off voters ultimately to the extent you don't present them with something. And then the last brief point that I'll make is the notion that every election is sort of the most important election in history. That actually does feel true every one of these cycles. And I think that points to actually the failure as a country when everything that happens in Washington seems to dictate the direction of our lives. It speaks to, of course, uh, the rot, the corruption of an administrative state that hyper-regulates every aspect of our lives and how politics is so fused with society now that it's corrupted basically everything it touches. So every election is the most important election ever because the state is embedded in every single institution in our country
0: today. So I think the the key point here to underscore is basically what Inez said. I mean, this is a perfect follow-up, obviously, to, as Rachel said at the outset, to what Kevin McCarthy said last week. And, you know, I was on our friend Ali Beth Stuckey's podcast yesterday, and we were, we were kind of talking about this. And look, the reality is, you know, I, no one here is a socialist, okay? No one here is anti-capitalism. But the same rah, 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 like the solution to all of our problems is, is energy independence. I mean, it's like slashing corporate tax cuts. First of all, we should actually do like a future segment on whether corporate tax cuts in a situation where corporate America hates our guts and wants to kill us is actually smart policy. But let's kind of cabin that aside. But e- even, like our, e- even if we concede, argue, as lawyers would say that that is good policy, cynically speaking, Republican officeholders who care about getting elected and getting reelected, they are flocking to the Republican Party, as Inez says, not on those issues. And it doesn't take a genius to realize that. You can go back as far as 2017, the, the political scientist Lee Drummond had that infamous kind of four quadrant XY axis, kind of you know like economic conservative, economic liberal, social conservative, social liberal. And I think it was like 26% of America identified as um, quote unquote economically conservative. So when you kind of tow this kind of culturally conservatism, something more kind of populist hue, you are going to bring in new voters. And like the polling shows this, over and over and over again. We did a segment, I think, in December about this new like National Wall Street Journal poll showing that Hispanics are literally like 50 on like a, the generic ballot for this fall. They're not flocking to the GOP for like 1980s era, you know, laissez-faire fundamentalism bromides. They're just not. They're flocking to the GOP because of critical race theory and because they hate being told that this. Wonderful country that they left their crap all countries to move to is systemically racist and rotten to its core. So it really is just a total failure, obviously, of Republican leadership. It, it, it very well, by the way, still might work because the Democratic Party, you know, Biden and all of them are in just such abominable shape right now that it definitely could still work. I mean, I, I'm sure if Republicans kind of take this McConnell line and run with it all the way till November, they probably still will take back the House. They may well still take back the Senate because the Democrats are in such disarray. But it just fundamentally, I mean, this is a problem kind of for the right in general, right? And we're not going to have time to really flesh this out. But I think too many on our side are just content to kind of just like, condemn the enemy to condemn the opposition to say they're terrible they're terrible terrible and like they are terrible i'm not going to deny that here but rachel i think like your speech in natcon i think the reason that it got so much attention and you know my speech maybe to a slightly lesser extent is because like the policies and like the very substantive ideas were in there that is what moves the ball forward that is what attracts people that's what galvanizes support it intensifies opposition but it also galvanizes support so it's really just a failure of leadership here but it probably will still pay off them, obviously. Um, but anyway, uh, any, any final thoughts on this segment before I go to Ben, Rachel?
2: Sure. Um, I just want to jump in here with something really brief. Uh, we talked about whether this is the most important election of our lifetimes and how frequently, and I agree with Ben's points about how, you know, obviously DC has way more power than it should, and that's part of the reason. But I think what is so missing on Republican leadership or seems to be missing from, from the way that they think about the world and how they think about this election is that on if our, our current trajectory continues by default, we're going to lose on everything important. The left owns every institution in this country. And so it's going to take an actual, you know, move from the Republican Party to knock this trajectory off its tracks. If they don't do that, we are going to continue on our current trajectory and their, you know, majority will dissolve and they may not get another one. And and so like. I do think this is the most important, and I, I usually don't say that. I don't say like, oh, this is the most important election of our lifetimes. I think that all of the trajectory in our institutions, I think we've seen in the last two to four years and even before that, how radically things can change very, very quickly. And I do think like this is going to require actually actual kinetic action from the people who see that this trajectory is dangerous in order to stop it. If we kind of futz around the edges, the trajectory will remain the same and we're going to lose on everything important.
1: Yeah, I couldn't have said it better. I think you know, kinetic action is probably the best. (laughs) If they just put that in a slogan, at least it'd be better than nothing (laughs) if we can get them to do that.
0: All right, well, on that note, let's toss it over to Ben. So Ben, tell us about the new FBI domestic terror unit. Yeah, mentioning
3: kinetic action there will probably get this unit sicked on everyone on this podcast. So Uh, so with that preface, um, last week, as many people know, uh, within the last two weeks, there was a much bandied about hearing of the Senate Judiciary Committee, I believe, with a representative from the FBI and a representative from the Department of Justice Uh, they're talking about domestic terrorism broadly under the rubric of uh, January 6th and uh, homegrown violent extremism, so-called. And I want to start with the good of that hearing and then go to the bad and juxtapose that hearing with what's actually going on on the ground today, which will transition nicely to what Josh has to talk about. So the good, I think, is that we saw Senator Cruz, we saw Chuck Grassley, we saw Mike Lee, we saw Tom Cotton all go at the DOJ slash FBI, with questions that all of us are hungering for. And I think, incidentally, if there was one really positive aspect of the fallout from that infamous uh, Ted Cruz, Tucker Carlson interview, it was that it lit a fire under these senators. And I think it also showed us that political pressure really does work. They do hear it in Washington when the base gets really riled up because they feel that there's a massive injustice out there. And the senators raised some of these injustices. Obviously, Senator Cruz went at these officials asking very pointed questions about informants potentially associated with the Capitol riot, who is Ray Epps, et cetera. And the questions were basically can't answer that, can't answer that, can't answer that, which, of course, Tells you that potentially there is something that is being kept from us, uh, and of course, call summon the the January sixth Select Committee to come out and say, "Well, Rayups is not an informant, at least uh, of you know one agency, not necessarily of any government agency." Of the like, we don't need to go down that rabbit hole. Uh, there were questions raised about the double standard in treatment in both the prosecutorial vigor and investigative vigor associated with January sixth versus the summer twenty twenty riots, which is a huge issue as well and points to. The politicization, arguably, of the Justice Department and the FBI as well. So I think raising these points was valuable. Of course, there's no teeth behind them, which I think is probably the downside to all this. And We have not seen any teeth really bared with respect to the deep state's massive corrupt and hyperpolitical weaponization type activities over the last five years now and probably before that as well. We may not know the details of it. Now, let's talk about a little bit of the bad here. The FBI, while, of course, we now know that there was this attempted jihadist attack in Texas, set up a new domestic terror unit. And basically what they said is the greatest homegrown threat is presented by, and I'll quote here, and this was from some of the testimony, the prepared testimony, those espousing racial or ethnic bias or anti-government or anti-authority sentiments. Now, the anti-government or anti-authority sentiments thing, of course, should raise hackles from everyone, because who defines that? And of course, if you oppose the regime's ideologies, we've spoken about ad nauseum here, on any of a slew of subjects, you could be portrayed as an enemy of the regime, an anti-authority, uh, violent extremist. And then obviously, the racial or ethnic bias, as the president is going out calling people literally, do you want to be on the side of Bull Connor or Jefferson Davis or George Wallace because you believe in voter ID? It is clear how chilling this sort of language is how it's in the eye of the beholder, and how, once again, our officials never explicitly define the size, scope, or nature of the threat that they have now elevated to being the biggest threat, that is, those who would dare dissent from the regime. And of course, we saw the president go out himself and ask for social media companies to combat so-called misinformation, basically brazenly calling for censorship. So you see how this all comes together. And I'll briefly say, during testimony, one of the officials said that there were four attacks by domestic violent extremists over the last year and 13 dead, did not provide any details around this whatsoever, which again leads to the question, can you quantify this purported threat and tell us why, as Christopher Ray has noted, they've more than tripled the number of agents and analysts working on these so-called domestic terrorism cases. So the last thing I'll say is juxtapose this versus the fact that sedition charges were filed for the first time associated with January 6th defendants under withering pressure from the left that Merrick Garland has implicitly acknowledged, again, pointing to politicization here, the school board memo controversy continues to persist. And we now find out that there was circularity there with the education secretary and the White House colluding with the National School Board Association to draft a letter to the DOJ slash FBI to sick it on parents who dare to challenge critical race theory in their schools or draconian COVID measures. And then last but not least, we also saw the DOJ reportedly at least, will be dropping another case in connection with its China initiative, which is a counter espionage initiative aimed at prosecuting and indicting those engaging in spying activities against our homeland from China. The DOJ China initiative is under review, which of course means that it could be pulled altogether. So domestic terrorists purportedly greatest threat, China threat being dropped, DOJ FBI still being sicked on parents. My question would be, do you think that this ought to be an issue that we're talking about going in the midterms in 2022? Or do we think that Republicans are quiet on this because they don't have the courage of their convictions and or they don't think that it's really popular with a wide swath of Americans?
1: I just don't think that they have the stones (laughs) to take on this issue. Frankly, it has shocked me to no end that in the you know, the January 6th select committee and the unprecedented actions of these House Democrats in subpoenaing their colleagues and demanding you know private records of private citizens with no real justification. And there has been barely a peep out of House Republicans. So it's like, how how do you expect them to stand up against? you know, this kind of deep state action, which is so treacherous, you know, it, it's, it's self-evident, I think, to anyone what's going on here. You know, crime is, is skyrocketing in major cities all over the country. And yet this is where our, you know, the premier law enforcement re- resources of our country are focused. It's just such a misapplication and an, and an obvious attempt to literally jail political opposition. And the, the fact that we have a hard time calling that out, man, it, that's where a, it's, a, it's a rough, rough stakes, people.
2: You know, I, I think this is part of why it's so difficult, um, and, and I would be sympathetic if the stakes weren't so high, if we were just talking about this in sort of a theoretical or ideological way. It's difficult for conservatives, people who, you know, and, and all of us, I think at, at some point we're the same, it, it's very difficult to make that switch to understand how broken the institutions are how ideologically taken over they are and it's especially different in the law enforcement context difficult for conservatives right it is difficult they do not want to wrap their minds around the fact that like the fbi could be politically weaponized by the left that's like that's that's a very anti-conservative small c conservative point right because it puts us in the position of being anti-institutions right um and and there's so much of conservative philosophy and outlook that goes about how important, you know, that it goes to how important institutions are um, and how how difficult they are to build once destroyed. Right, so I think it's really a difficult mindset flip, but it's one that's necessary. And then on on the specific point, I think this is why you saw. I got into a yelling match with a young Turks guy um, about on January 6th, right? Because of this issue. I think that's why they're so desperate to define this, why you're seeing charges now brought for sedition. They're so desperate to formally define this as terrorism rather than to talk about a riot in the Capitol, right? Um, Because it it allows them linguistically then to pivot, um, not just not just in their words, but then with this entire apparatus that is built for for essentially foreign terrorism, right? And to to pivot that against their their domestic enemies. And they're being very open and clear about that. But I I guess I would be sympathetic to the idea that Republicans don't find themselves, um, you know, don't understand how to basically go against like the FBI, like law enforcement. This is sort of basic conservative principles. But the problem is the fewer People realize that, in fact, the project of the right, more broadly, now is a kind of guerrilla project. Um, it, it is it is uh, making very you know nonviolent war uh, against against the institutions, and that we have to be fundamentally in opposition to those institutions in order to preserve anything worth preserving about America. I think that's like a very difficult thing for conservatives, small c conservatives, to like accept. And I think that's why we're seeing such reluctance among. Republican leadership to accept that. But that being said, we don't have time for them.
0: So yeah, look, I, I don't have a whole lot to add. I, I I would agree with everything that's already been said here. I mean, I, I think to answer your kind of question at the end of your segment, Ben, as to why Republicans are not running on this, I mean, look, I mean, there is a decades-long kind of vestigial reluctance in kind of the capital R Republican, conservative American mindset to criticize law enforcement because uh, we are pro-law enforcement. We do back the boys in blue. And by the way, like there was a big distinction here. I think there was a difference to be made here, I think between police forces, which obviously are the creatures of municipalities all across the country and are kind of by definition less susceptible to kind of DC swamp cultural creep and all the kind of, kind of woke bromides. Um, that you would actually need to say in order to advance in your career. I mean, that's just not going to happen on on kind of a, you know, a sheriff's level in X County, Kansas or Oklahoma, whatever, the same way that would happen in the FBI or the CIA. But it really kind of just, um, you know, it does posthumously just vindicate so much of what Angela Cotavilla has written over the past 10 to 15 years about kind of the FBI and the CIA. And the NSA in particular, and I would just encourage the listeners and viewers to kind of find his essay um, at Claremont's American Mind website. I can't remember quite when he wrote it; it might have been like 2019. It was probably two or three years ago at this point um, about the need to abolish or reform uh, the FBI, CIA, NSA—basically the entire IC. Uh, and Angela was uniquely qualified to to, to write on that. Um, but unless anyone has any other further thoughts on this, I think it's a pretty good segment to what I want to what I want to, to, what, I, to what I want to talk about. So, anyone have any final thoughts on this? Nope. Okay. So let's, let's transition then um, to this weekend story in Colleyville, Texas. Um, so Colleyville, for those of you who are less familiar with the Dallas-Fort Worth area, which is where I called home for two and a half years, um, is in uh, northeastern Tarrant County. So it's a suburb of Fort Worth. Uh, it's a former, it is located actually in uh, my good friend, Connie Burden's former state Senate district back in Connie represented um, Tarrant County in the Texas state legislature. So um, kind of like an affluent suburban town here. And what happened on Saturday obviously was as everyone knows by now was um, Congregation Beth Israel which is a synagogue there um, w- w- was the victim of a deranged Pakistani British national Muslim men's hostage crisis. Um, he held uh, the rabbi and three congregants captive for hours and hours on end. Uh, thank God no one was ultimately killed. Um, initially, we thought that kind of uh, the FBI and SWAT had kind of gone in and kind of like heroic kind of like a MI6 style fashion to kind of take out uh, the villain. But it turns out that uh, the rabbi seems to have caught um, this man at a bad time and threw a chair at him and kind of everyone managed to get out. But really neither here nor there. Um, there's, There's a lot to kind of break down about this. Obviously, the situation could have been a lot worse. The first thing I want to say is the very first time that I heard about this on Saturday, my first instinct was, okay, this is definitely like a theologically and politically liberal shul where the congregants are not carrying. And I knew that because they said that they were live streaming services on Shabbat, which by definition means it's not an Orthodox synagogue, so it's probably Reform. And if it's a reform, it's probably politically liberal. Well, as it turns out, I was right. Um, it turns out that a, a, there's an ex IDF guy who now lives in DFW, Dallas Fort Worth area, who actually ran for Congress a handful of years ago, who I'm friendly with, a guy named Edamar Gelman, who's a big gun rights activist. And he had a Facebook post saying that he briefly belonged to that synagogue. It turns out the so called rabbi um, has infamously over and over again kind of decried Israel as an apartheid state that is oppressing Palestinians and actually precluded his congregants from carrying in synagogue so go figure that this deranged man chose that place as the as the target so That's one point to make here um, is obviously just the the lunacy in the year 2022 of any Jewish institution, or I would argue any church or Christian institution that would kind of preclude its congregants from carrying. Um, Obviously, our Christian friends, uh, all Americans, remember all too well the horrific Sutherland Springs, Texas tragedy, of course, in 2017. I was living in Houston at the time, and that hit home for me personally, deeply. But a couple other points to make here. Um, at Newsweek this this week, we have a great piece that I ran from um, Hen Mazig about the role that CARE played in this. CARE, of course, Council on American-Islamic Relations. Um, CARE is basically a PSYOP for people who don't realize this. CARE is, has literally been a psychological warfare operation since the day it was founded. It was. It, it, I am not exaggerating when I say it was founded as a Muslim Brotherhood Hamas plant on American soil. It baffles me to this day that this point is not routinely made by Republican legislators. The receipts are very clear. They were an unindicted co-conspirator in the Holy Land Foundation trial, also in the Dallas area in 2008, the largest terror financing trial in US history with close ties to Hamas there. So CARE, if I can just kind of briefly read here, the reason that they're implicated here is because back this past, uh, in, in November, Zara Bilu, who is the director of Care's San Francisco chapter, she called on all Muslims to monitor, quote, Zionist synagogues. She said, quote, "They are not your friends. They are enemies of the Muslim community." So this kind of put a target, quite literally, of course, um, from kind of care activists, I think on synagogues all across the country here. And more directly, what actually happened in the fact pattern in this case is this deranged man was shouting about the imperative to free a woman by the name of Siddiqui, who has been behind bars now for about a decade for trying to kill her interrogators, At a, the fact pattern here is a little crazy, um, in an Afghanistan-related inquiry. And she was wildly and viciously anti-Semitic. She demanded at her ultimate at her ultimate trial that the jurors take a DNA test to prove that they had no Jewish origin. When the verdict came in, she said that this verdict did not come from America, it came from Israel. And this deranged Pakistani man in Texas on Saturday thought that by taking random Jews hostage, he could somehow free this woman. Not really sure what the kind of causal chain of connection there is. Um, there's so much more here to unpack. Maybe I'll save some more thoughts or final thoughts. I think this is a huge kind of immigration assimilation failure. That's kind of my personal big takeaway. I'll tap in that to the side. The other final quick point to make, and then I'll throw it open to the group, obviously, is the delusional way that the FBI to pick up on Ben's last segment initially handled this case. Um, On Saturday night, uh, the man who was kind of heading up the FBI's on-the-ground presence there in Colleyville, Texas, basically got before cameras, and he literally said, I kid kid you not, that it was not clear whether this event was, quote, specifically related to the Jewish community. He said, we are continuing to work to find a motive. So, um, I don't know. Uh, Ben, maybe you want to start us off on all these kind of FBI care themes? where to begin well
3: i think first of all the the context that you make about a which is the largest muslim american group in the country Uh, in my book american ingrid i actually walk through the history of cares ties direct ties from its co-founders on of course to the muslim brotherhood to hamas Uh, fundraising with some entities related to them subsequent to 9-11, et cetera. It's horrible, it's shameful. One of the reasons that there's been such a massive press against designating the Muslim Brotherhood as a a terrorist organization is precisely because CARE knows that it could be implicated. Uh, And interestingly, of course, many Arab nations themselves have banned the Muslim Brotherhood, the tip of the Sunni Islamist spear, precisely because, of course, it it is the tip of that spear. But our officials are cowed by CARE, and worth noting, by the way, that the executive director of CARE, who has ties to Hamas himself, is prominently displayed, for example, in uh, this effort to develop an Islamophobia envoy and and his pro-Islamophobia legislation. But of course, it's his his organization that itself has advocated for freeing uh, Siddiqui, this terrorist who tried to kill FBI and military officials. Okay, set all that aside. Other broader context that's really important here. The FBI went through a purge of materials on Sharia supremacist ideology under Robert Mueller. Uh, And so the lexicon itself has changed within law enforcement around uh, Islamist terrorism, which they wouldn't even call Islamist terrorism. They'd call it a violent extremism, of course, which means that it is a content-free description of who ought to be targeted. And consequently, of course, if you pervert and corrupt the language about who the adversary is, you're not gonna pursue the adversary. Uh, There is not training in Islamic supremacist ideology, which would give investigators and prosecutors all sorts of insights into Islamists and allow us to defend the homeland against them. Uh, To the political correctness in these comments, note then that then a statement came out subsequently after there was outrage, I think from the Joint Terrorism Task Force, basically saying this is a domestic terror incident, um, you know, and it was clearly uh, effectively pursuing uh, Jews, which is obvious, of course, because Sharia supremacist ideology is embedded in that ideology is Jew hatred. It's a feature, not a bug of it for Islamists. So it was obvious for all to see. And let's note that President Biden himself, who does set the tone, of course, at least theoretically, himself would not link, he would not rush to judgment, of course, even though he rushed to judgment in myriad other cases, Kyle Rittenhouse and beyond to smear him as a white supremacist, etc. cetera, here would not rush to judgment to call this an act by an Islamist terrorist. So it's corrupted from the top to the bottom. We're diverting all of these resources to pursuing wrong thinkers in this country. And it's inevitable that there are going to be attacks from Islamists and others, all of our adversaries on the march. It's never been easier for them. And let's note lastly, that under four years of Donald Trump, Islamist terrorism in America was basically an afterthought. And I do not think that's coincidental at all because it came from the top Obviously, for one thing, vetting. How did this person get in in the first place? And then number two, the obvious fact that someone like a Qasem Soleimani would be taken out if Americans were threatened. That threat from America to Islamists no longer exists, and our adversaries are going to exploit that.
2: Um, I don't have too much to add to this other than uh, the reminder that I think... um our our friend and Josh's colleague, Batya Ungar uh, had for the rest of us, um, which is don't forget that this still makes us the luckiest Jews ever to walk the earth um, here in, in America. Um, but with with regard to these kinds of incidents, what really strikes me is the disparity of coverage of different kinds of anti-Semitism, right? Um, and depending on, and I'll be blatant about this, depending on the racial background of who's conducting. either the terrorist act or um who is who is conducting sort of just spewing anti-semitic stuff and what we have is this very weird like bifurcation where you almost have to jump through a series of hoops and like stretch you know like (laughs) stretch the definitions and and attribute sort of malintent to things that are are facially um not direct anti-semitism um to, you know, a straight comment or a straight remark or whatever by, by a person, um, versus the very real, like you can. People can say things that are straight out of the protocols of Elders of Zion. Um, and, and, you know, the, the media will sort of t- twist itself into knots to call that not anti-Semitic versus twisting itself into knots to call some random straight remark that might be like insensitive or out of context as the real anti-Semitic problem in this country. So that's, that's really what, what struck me is how far the mainstream will stretch a, a stray remark into anti-Semitism based on like the skin color from fundamentally of the person who made it versus the opposite happening if the person has a different skin color. So that that's really uh, my, my two cents on, on this whole anti-Semitism thing in the United States.
1: Yeah, well, I'm happy to... <laughs> Let I have the last word on that because that, you know, I wanted to make a similar point on how we treat these attacks in the United States. And it goes back to the segment I think we just did on the domestic terrorism unit, right? We have all this like actual crime happening in the United States. And yet we're focused on, you know, shading motives based on race or, you know, going after people for exercising First Amendment rights. And that's just the state of our federal law enforcement, which I think, again, if Republicans take power, it needs to be a, a source of investigation.
0: All right. So on that note, uh, we've done some serious segments. So maybe, you know, and as you can take us home on a slightly lighter note.
2: Oh, I don't think it's lighter at all. Um, but my my topic this week is this really great article, Enter the Metaverse. that was published in City Journal by Bruno Massage, I believe is how you pronounce um, his last name, but uh, about the the, the inevitable uh, reality or move to the metaverse. And um, You know, some some obvious thoughts uh, that that pop up might be uh, this is, of course, going to splinter um, and atomize us more than ever. The echo echo chambering is going to be worse than ever. I mean, this is part of um, the both positive and negative thing about the Internet is you can find people no matter how weird your sort of niche is. You can find people who share it. And that's a wonderful thing in in many ways. But it does it has basically brought to an end any kind of era of common pop culture, uh, which is a further thing that is splintering us apart. Um, but, but more worrying, I think, from the political perspective is, of course, it's, it's, it's subject to all the same manipulable forces as everything we worry about with tech companies today, right? Um, and, and I think that there's a the potential for this to get much, much worse because there is just something about reality that provides at least an eventual hard stopping point, right? Things that can't go on forever don't. The Soviet Union eventually fell because it ran into reality. Um, I'm you know, It's not very clear that, is that true? in a totally digital existence, in a virtual existence. I mean, reality seems increasingly bleak, restrictive and out of fashion. Uh, both massage in this, this um, uh, article and then Ross Douthat in a different one has kind of um, has some optimism about a revival, a cultural revival within the metaverse. But um, you know, as a conservative, and we talked about sort of the conservative view of, of looking at institutions or looking at human nature, if the two fundamental visions of human nature are the constrained and the unconstrained as soul so so, uh well has written so well um what is going to happen when we move into a world where the constraints that underlie a conservative perspective and underlie reality itself are removed um and and just as a side like a side point that doesn't is not really connected to uh anything that i said but in terms of the political stuff i mean the lack of permanency and the ability to, to alter go back and alter things, um, in a, 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 digital universe. I mean, this is Stalin's wet dream, right? Um, you don't just erase somebody from a photo. You can literally erase them or what happened. You can go back and change things, um, in, in, in uh, in keeping with, with an evolving narrative. So if, if, if the, uh, the old phrase is we've always been at war with East Asia, like in a digital meta- metaverse, you can literally go back and edit it to be true every time that party line changes. So I, I worry about those constraints being removed, um, and and the inevitable atomization, alienization, and manipulation that happens um, when when we potentially try to slip the bonds of reality. So that that's my so Josh, not not too optimistic. Sorry.
1: <laughs> I think it's well said though, because this is the concern, you know. We've, we talk a lot on this podcast about how big tech is reshaping the contours and parameters of how we interact with one another. And I think that's been especially true of our discourse, which has downstream effects on, you know, tons of other things. But I think when you talk about the metaverse, you are, it is a black and white question. All of the things, as Inez pointed out, that constrain human nature, consequences, you know, social opprobrium, um, you know, the things that keep us in check, like, are gone. You can literally create a permissionless universe. uh, universe. And I don't know that that's necessarily a good thing as it relates to what the metaverse wants to be, when you hear Mark Zuckerberg talk about it, he wants it to be literally an alternative reality on all fronts. It's not somewhere that you just go to hang out or relax or whatever. He wants you to date in the metaverse. He wants you to have business meetings in the metaverse. He probably, he wants you to transact in the metaverse. So how do you actually take society as it's constituted and put it in a place where the rules don't exist? It's not that they're changed, they just don't exist. And then I think the second factor of this also is just, you know, the the control that will be, I think imposed on people that exist there. We talk about the social discourse now and the control and the narrative control these tech companies try to have. Wait till you're operating in the metaverse, where (laughs) you know what I mean. You say the wrong thing, and somehow to Anessa's point, you are disappeared in a very tangible way for people who you know have made this uh, their reality. And I think the last thing I'll say on it is like coming on the heels of COVID, after going into year three now of our the physicality of our interaction being removed. I think this is a very dangerous time for us to be even having this conversation because we've lost, again, I think so much of the importance of being together, of society that's built on human interaction and you know, not just seeing other people's responses, but just the warmth of of humanity, like being next to each other. So we are evolving, I think, very, very quickly down this path in a way that I don't know that we are quite prepared to do.
0: So th- that was the exact point that I wanted to make. So I'll just kind of pick up exactly where Rachel left off. So obviously, this debate is happening at a at a un- like a uniquely terrible and per- and and uh, honestly, I, I I fear like a uniquely vulnerable time for the populace because we simply have been lacking like this human human interaction. So I'm going to read a tweet um, that a friend of mine who does not use his real name on Twitter, but. I would be shocked if Elise Nez does not know who this person is he'll get a kick out of the fact that we're citing him so he's at tk dylan on twitter he tweets in the context of covid two days ago again conservatives make the substantive argument for why communion with fellow man facial communication and respect for medical conscience are essential for human flourishing the liberty argument only goes so far when the people don't really care about freedom anymore and He's onto something here, obviously, right? I mean, we have seen, obviously, in like places like Australia, we did a whole segment on the Novak Djokovic kerfuffle just last week. We've seen places that were once kind of liberty-loving places. The United States, honestly, in most jurisdictions is is basically kind of, um, it's obviously not as bad as Australia, but there are certainly kind of, um, it, it's, not, it's not that far off when you go to places like, you know, former mayor Bill de Blasio's New York City, what's happening with Mural Bowser in D.C. and places like that. So the argument here has to be not just kind of platitudinous citations to like rah, rah, freedom, rah, rah, liberty, whatever. It has to be kind of a a, a more sophisticated argument um, for why there will never be a substitute for human-to-human interaction here. And this kind of gets back to something else we we taught in this podcast in the past, which is kind of the potential perils of kind of just the whole Zoom work-from-home culture, if that kind of takes a hold, right? I mean... Selfishly, like cynically, I, uh, you know, I, I love work from home. I mean, I was I was working from home actually well before COVID. I mean, for like a you know like a year or two before COVID. But there are all too easily foreseeable real downsides to the human experience when we are not actually interacting in the flesh. I mean, there is a reason, obviously, when you kind of visit like a city if you're traveling. You will call or text your friends or loved ones or relatives and like say like hey let's get a coffee hey let's get a dinner like you want to see someone you want to interact with them like like a facetime ultimately just is simply not sufficient obviously so these are kind of like richer experiences about kind of what it ultimately means to be human and i'm not sure the conservatives have like the right vocabulary to kind of make these arguments i think we're kind of missing this from kind of our standard conservatism inc kind of style crash courses i'm not sure it's the kind of thing they teach you on capitol hill i I defer to rachel maybe i'm wrong i I don't i suspect i'm probably not Um, but you know it would be good for starters if if we started to kind of get like roger scruton and you know people like that kind of back more to kind of like the conservative ecosystem or something
3: Uh, i'll be brief um you know there's also the aspect of this where the the next generation uh is already being wrecked by the draconian coronavirus policies. And then you're going to add to that the fact that big tech basically seeks to completely corrupt the American way of life for profit. And I I think it's chilling, it's disturbing, and it, it points to something that's far deeper than our politics. I was kind of compiling a list here in real time of like all the ways that big tech corrodes our society. And I, I think back, you know, first of all, let me just state my priors here. I've been working from home for like seven or eight years now, and I love it. I love the freedom of it, but it's certainly not everyone is made to be working independently uh, and not have a ton of human interaction in their day-to-day basis. Uh, of course, it has a massive rampant manifest developmental issues and beyond that it creates for individuals. But I'm just thinking about all of the, the negative aspects of this, I mean, first of all, the atomization aspect, it breaks down the common bonds of society. It's where we are all operating in our own echo chambers. And some echo chambers are better than others, by the way, worth saying that. But nevertheless, there was a time where we had a common culture, where we all kind of knew and agreed with the same things. And that's obviously the basic foundations of our society. We have manifest differences, divides over those things now. Uh, Obviously, the fact that big tech rewires our minds, um, makes us very short-term, kind of dopamine oriented, stops us from being able to focus de- and think deeply about meaningful things for any period of time. And then, of course, it manipulates us with the regime's narrative. Twitter is what's trending to me, is what the official regime narrative is on a day-to-day basis. That that is our future. That is like the loudspeakers in the Soviet Union or North Korea telling you what the regime wants to hear every single day. So the, to add on to it, there's the mind control aspect of this. And it basically creates the ultimate police surveillance state for profit. And I think it's one of the reasons why our government in large part is co-opted by and also colludes with big tech. And I think back to the wisdom, my late grandmother, I always called her a Luddite. She was against all of these technologies. And now I look at it from the perspective of a you know 30 something year old with a couple little kids. And I think this really is going to corrupt and destroy our society if it continues this way.
2: Yeah, I guess I would only close by saying that um, you know, of all the things that conservatism has failed to conserve, uh, one of the most important may end up being preserving any notion of humanity. Um, and, and that doesn't mean necessarily uh, backing away like your grandma does, although it might. Backing away from technological advances, it could also, I think, and that's part of what this article touches on: um, how how to preserve and even flourish. Within a technological space that is moving too fast for our understanding. So, um, you know, I, I think those are essential questions as to wrap this all up in a nice bow that Rachel was pointing out that, that the Republican Party are not willing to consider. This is yet another, it might not be quite as immediately pressing in a way as some of our political considerations, but it is a civilizational level consideration and conservatives are going to have to grapple with how to deal with it.
0: All right. So let's move along to final thoughts here. Is anyone have anything that they want to get started with?
1: I just want to sort of riff on something. Inez just said, because when I was thinking through kind of all these segments, so many of these questions are things we turn to our politics to solve. Um, And they're very, you know, I do think even the metaverse is kind of a pressing question with this idea toward the fact that for centuries now, you know, we've had a self-government that's been able to look at new innovation and say, well, we are going to take that and incorporate it into our values and traditions. We're not going to let it, you know, change or redefine what it means to be human, you know, or expand the bounds or distort or break the bounds of the social contract. And I think that's where we're at now with the tech companies and the metaverse. But, you know, so many of these these other issues, be it from, you know, the sort of racial animus animating how we talk about you know, anti-Semitism or the, the Department of Justice trying to, again, jail, literally jail political opposition. You know, all of this is something that we are looking toward our government in many cases, or our elected representatives to step in and solve. Some of this, I think, has to be meted out on our own. You know, when we get to notions of humanity, when we get to this fundamental concept of what it means to be human and to what it means to live together in a society that always, I think gets redefined uh, every generation, but perhaps this one, you know, we're all having it kind of on Twitter, which is disturbing in its own, right? But these are things that, again, like if you are going to have a meaningful self-government, you have to have people who are tuned into what's animating. The voters, And these are all things that are. And so, again, it just comes back to, to the segment, you know, the, why I'm so honed in, I think, on, on the segment I did about what Republicans are proposing, because I want to see that they have a clue. I want to see that they are dialed in to what it is that is, you know, pushing us uh, all in, in in the direction of, of all these conversations. And right now I'm not convinced that they, they know yet.
0: So I, I'll do my closing thought, kind of just following up. On the segment that I did on Texas, because there are just so there are so many takeaways here. Um, it's it, it's really honestly unbelievable. I think, and obviously, thank God that this hostage situation did not did not end with um, you know any civilians dying. But look, the the care story I think is, is is a major story. Would really encourage the listeners and viewers to check out this this op-ed from Hen Mazu that I posted on um, Newsweek uh, the day that we're recording this, which is Tuesday. But The point that I wanted to kind of flesh out just a little more, which kind of teased briefly in the segment was the immigration aspect of this. Um, To put it very simply, what in God's name was this guy doing in the United States? Like, Like very simply, like what was this man, this Pakistani British national with delusional thoughts about like the protocols of the elders of Zion apparently doing in the US? I mean, like seriously, like his logic literally seems to have been to go to like a random synagogue and take some random people hostage. And apparently his request was to have this rabbi call another quote-unquote rabbi like uh, you know like a female reform rabbi that's kind of why I'm doing like the the scare quotes there like a, 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 a quote-unquote rabbi like in New York City like thousands of miles away to like literally call like the council of the elders of Zion to free this prisoner who, and this prisoner has these lines saying that the Jews did this to me I mean like you can't make this stuff up I mean like this is literally out of like a dark like villainous novel of some sort here so he really kind of gets to kind of fundamental question about the failure of of, of assimilation policy. I don't know the details as to how long, you know, this guy was in the United States or what kind of visa he was on or how he got here in the first place here. But, you know, it kind of takes me back, obviously, to a point that I've made that I think Ben has said at some point, um, Daniel Horowitz certainly made this point over and over and over again, which is so much, so much in the way of kind of these national security kind of terrorist jihad problems that happen on the US. There was a shooting um, in Florida, where was that in Pensacola two or three years ago. Um, 9-11 being by far the biggest example. So many of these issues ultimately get back to failures of vetting and failures of immigration policy here. Um, And like, I, I just really hope that one of our biggest takeaways from this incident is to kind of get people to be asking themselves like, what in the name of God was this ridiculous person with out, out, outrageously conspiratorial and back crap, insane thoughts on Jews and Americans, Israelis, whatever, what was he doing in this country? Because he clearly should not have been there.
2: Um, I, I guess I'll, I'll finally deliver a small dose of optimism, Josh, so so that Josh will invite me back on NatCon Squad uh, as, <laughs> as the, the sort of perennially pessimistic person. Um, so I had, I had some serious doubts about whether or not Glenn Youngkin would deliver on the agenda that he promised for parents in Virginia, but his first several days in office has been very, very encouraging. He, he has the right attitude. He's, um, talking about stripping critical race theory out of, out of curriculum to the extent that the executive in Virginia has the power to do that. He's put in this anti-mask order, basically saying, I don't even want to say anti-mask order because he says. Basically, he's putting it back in the hands of parents now there is going to be a legal back and forth about how much power localities have and, and um, there's a lot of boring legal stuff to talk about like Dillon states, <laughs> um, and whether or not localities have powers not explicitly granted to them by by the uh, state legislature. Um, but, but it shows that he's, he's very serious about delivering on those promises. The, the only thing that I, I would add in terms of um, importance of structure. Um, I, I have a very hard time seeing any of these, with perhaps the exception of the COVID policies, because those are so um, made on like sort of an emergency basis. Um, I, have, I have a really difficult time imagining that any of this anti-CRT uh, sort of um, legislative efforts and, and executive efforts, as much as I support those efforts, will be actually long-term successful uh, without the 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 coupling of any kind of some kind of really broad universal school choice, um, and that's because every level of the education system. Uh, is bought in. We, I mean, you know, we're always talking about, uh, you know, uh, institutions and stuff. There's no institution more bought in to the ideology uh, that we're all, you know, sort of against and positioned ourselves against than every level of the education system. This is not a problem that you know sprung mm-hmm. up a year and a half ago, and um, this is not a problem that started with the George Floyd riots in summer of 2020. Um, this is an ideology that has been embedded in in the schools of education. It's embedded in the certification requirements. It's embedded in the the private school um, accreditation system, right? This is this is guidance counselors, um, teacher trainings, right? The way that money is allocated within the public system. And you have to understand that that going up against that kind of ideological slash bureaucratic system where the ideology has become quote unquote best practices. Um, is, is very, very difficult to like come in with a scalpel and say, well, don't use these, you know, don't use these words, don't use this ideology because the ideology will find its way in in a different way. And that's why I think the only true solution to this is going to be not just giving school choice um, as, as sort of the traditional Republican platform has been uh, as a way to uh, escape um, really failing public schools for people who might not have the financial means to do so, but a real way to give people leverage, like middle-class families leverage, middle-class family in Northern Virginia with three kids, right, you're talking about 60, $70,000 between their three kids and that is being spent on their behalf and giving them the kind of leverage and control over that money, I think is the only way to actually, um, attach consequences and accountability mm-hmm. to this system. It's going to be very, very difficult. If we do this piecemeal and we go in and we say, okay, no critical race theory. Well, a year from now, we'll be going in and saying no social and emotional learning because that's going to be the next thing. Right. And then after that, it's going to be, you know, trans ideology, all of these things, um, you know, they come under the same bro- umbrella of ideology, and I don't think that it's going to be a long-term successful solution to come at them piecemeal, even though, again, I, I think this is very optimistic. I think that Glenn Youngkin's first couple days in office have been very encouraging, um, and I was a, I was a little bit skeptical of whether or not he would deliver um, for especially those moderate parents who are not long-term Republican voters but who very much care about this issue. I think it's critical for Glenn Youngkin to make a a stand on these issues, not just to show those parents in Virginia, uh, but also to prove that the Republican Party can, in fact, deliver on some of these cultural issues that are flipping voters.
3: Um, Totally agree with those sentiments. And I I think it's always worth noting, and just as an example of how education is really kind of the tip of the spear Mm -hmm. of the entire long march. It's, it's always imperative to remember that the Angela Davises or the Bill Ayers of the world, they after they finished their radicalism, they became professors. They continued the radicalism. They indoctrinated future generations in it. and I think it's very telling where the most radical, literal terrorists, domestic terrorists, ended up going is to take over your children's, grandchildren's minds. Um, so on that sunny note, uh, I will say also from Virginia, one positive that I saw was that the new attorney general apparently is going to fire or did fire civil rights division there and mass and said he's going to take on cases that social justice prosecutors were dropping so that's certainly a a positive as well and what's definitely a blue state i wouldn't even call it a purple state it's a blue state very telling that those moves are being made i guess where i kind of shake out in all of this is wokeism corrupts everything that it touches and it literally kills you know last episode we talked about racial rationing of covid treatments Today, we mentioned, like Rachel has alluded to, the deaths of countless innocents on the streets of our cities across the country, by, uh, while our woke social justice warriors are for decarceration and defunding police, et cetera, You see it with an FBI and DOJ that's hyper-politicized. That is going to lead to national security. Disasters here by diverting resources and willful blindness. Uh, and we see it, of course, with these prosecutors, um, basically incentivizing crime throughout the country. Uh, So I guess where I shake out in all of this is, as terrible as all of that is, and as corrupted as our institutions are, it first of all comes back to having a virtuous people. The Constitution, the the inspiring document of the Declaration, all of these vital institutions become not only not vital, but actually antithetical to our vitality if the people who populate them are themselves corrupted and in hock to an alien ideology. Uh, But at the same time, the silver lining of all of this, I guess, is that the facts of life do prove to be conservative. Human nature does bear itself out, oftentimes through horrible scenarios. And I guess what I'd say is it presents a hugely target-rich environment for all of us to pick up on all of these massive failures and actually run with the ball with a positive agenda in civil society and in our politics as well to, to turn the ship around. But obviously we're about 100 years behind of that long march. And that's why every single election really is the most important one.
0: All right. Well, on that note, on behalf of Ben, Rachel, and Inez filling in for Emily, I am Josh Hammer. We will see you at the next NatCon squad.